This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to independent film. Inside, you'll find tools, tips, and tricks vetted by industry professionals, independent films that will inspire your creativity, filmmaking events where you can rub elbows with filmmakers just like you, and so much more. The best part of it all, it's absolutely free. All you have to do is go to www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe. And within a few clicks, you'll be part of our newsletter community. Again, that's www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights, a free bi-weekly newsletter from Chris and Nick at Bonsai Creative. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and this is an Indie Talk week, and that means I have my good friend and co-host, Nicholas Bugs, with me. Nick, say hello. Hello, hello. Uh, I got to, and there's a little bit of cleanup, man, I have to do. And okay. I, and I'm sad, I'm sad that do I Do you need to step to away this. from the camera? Do you need to go to the restroom? <laughs> no, it's not like that. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I, I realized something on one of our last conversations. I was talking about my Hawaiian family that I got, right? And I, you were, I, I forced yeah. you into a, that you, you, conversation. You did. You, you forced me yeah. into it. I'm and such one a of bastard. the things that I, I, was, I mentioned, I said, you know, aloha, of course, it's hello. Mm-hmm. And I said, aloha, ahui ho, right? Mm-hmm. And after and the said, conversation kind of was done, hey, I know you did. And when the when conversation <laughs> was done, I was like, yo, aloha, ahui ho. Means goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so it proved my like, point. It proved the point exactly I was making. Exactly that you were making on the conversation. <laughs> and I was so mad at myself because I'm like, oh, if any of my Hawaiian brethren from my wife's side of the family realize I said that, they're going to be like, Nick, come on, bro. Like, what are you doing? So I thought about taking it out. I talked to my wife about it. And I was like, mm-hmm. I should tell them to cut this. Like, just edit it out. And I was like, you know what? I'm just let it happen. I'm gonna let it be because it was in the moment. I was being stupid, but right now I'm gonna clean it up and let people know that's what that is. That's basically like a farewell. If you say aloha, ahui ho. But if you just say aloha, then like Chris said, yeah, that's your hello and potentially your goodbye as well. But anyway, I just want to let you know I messed that up and I got to clean it up. Well, that's what we do here at the Make It Podcast, Audio Veritas, Podcast Veritas. Yep. So, but we leave in the mistakes because why? Filmmakers are humans too, right? Like, like you got it. We're filmmakers too, are people too. We're human. We make mistakes. But when we see them, we try to, like you said, clean it up. Here's that's a right. wet wipe for your mistake. Here's a wet wipe. <laughs> right, you, wet you, wipe you wet wipe that up. Yeah, now, I appreciate that. We're not alone. 
again. No, and, you know, this has been the theme of 23 is just having incredible people that want to be a part of the podcast, want to be part of this filmmaker conversation that we're having, want to be part of the indie film community in a deeper um, way. And and I can't tell you how excited I am about it every single week. I was actually mentioning that in the, in the rundown before this is like, damn, we haven't done this in a long time. That's right. And I think the litmus test is that I missed it. Like I was on vacation. I took a three week vacation. So what a blessing, but that meant no, no talking on the mic, no talking on, on to guests or to, or having any indie talk whatsoever. So I'm really happy and excited to uh, welcome Chris Everett from the Southern Documentary Fund to this Indie Talk. Chris, welcome, man. Hey, how you guys doing? You're doing well, man. <laughs> doing really well. I'm drinking. I'm drinking this like um, I'm almost done with it actually because it was the last bit of the bottle. This it's called Han. Okay. We used to have a filmmaking friend named Susan Han, spelled the same way H A H N. I think is yeah. like. There you go. And it, I'm always, tell me if you're like this, Chris, I'm always wary of wine that doesn't have a cork. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if it has a screw top, like, it's, screw a, top. like it's a 40, like it's a 40, <laughs> right, right. like it's malt liquor. <laughs> like it's an like, MD 2020. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> like how good is it? I'm telling you this drinks like Welch's great. It's so mm. fruity. So I just want to give them props for making a, an affordable, tasty little wine that I've enjoyed. But I'm at the end of it now. So, yeah, to answer your question, Chris, I'm doing well. And um, we're excited to have you on. Can you tell, just, just to get the audience a little bit more, I guess, acclimated to you, can you, can you tell us just your name, title, uh, what we might know you for, uh, what you're working on, a little bit about the Southern Doc, uh, Documentary Fund as well? Gotcha. Well, you know, I'm Chris Everett, Christopher Everett officially, but people can call me Chris. Um, I'm the artistic director um, for the Southern Documentary Fund. Um, the Southern Documentary Fund, we've been around for about 20 years now, and we help cultivate and support um, documentary filmmakers and documentary makers in general, whether it's documentary audio, um, film, mm -hmm. photography, um, and exhibition screening series as well. So we try to really support um, the Southern documentary ecosystem as much as we can. And so what I'm kind of known for is not really the Southern Documentary Fund. Um, I'm a documentary filmmaker as well. And so I've done several documentary films over the years. What I'm really most known for is a film called Wilmington on Fire. Mm -hmm. It's a documentary about the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. And so that's really what people know me for <laughs> you know, over the past few years. But um, Southern Documentary Fund actually supported my career um, early on and so when I got the opportunity to be a part of the Southern Documentary Fund, you know, I was thrilled to, to be a part of it because I know it did so much for me in my career living in the South. And so now I'm able to give back to those filmmakers as well. And you're in North Carolina, right? Yes, sir. So everyone talks about Black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how that just had a moment. Right. And I don't know exactly what was the catalyst that moment. I don't know if it was something Dick Gregory was talking about before he passed away. I don't know if it was, you know, something that came up in a podcast. Um, I don't know if it came out of BLM. Mm -hmm. 
but everybody started to realize that during reconstruction, you know, black people were thriving, but right. white people weren't having it in certain communities. Right. But I don't think people know what the Wilmington fire is. This happened right. in 1898. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what this is and why we haven't heard more about it? Well, you know, the Wilmington massacre of 1898, um, you know, we've all heard about Tulsa. Yeah, um, right. You know, John, John Singleton did a great movie back in 1997, Rosewood, yeah. really elevated that story um, as well. And so the Wilmington story, you know, really up until Wilmington on fire, you rarely heard about it. It was really mostly a local, no, locally known thing in Wilmington. And also, I would say throughout North Carolina, but outside mm-hmm. of North Carolina, a lot of people never heard of it. Um, but what happened in 1898 in Wilmington was very, very weird because back then Wilmington was really what the New South should have been after the Civil War, where right. you had white and black people working together in this thing called fusion of where they put some of their differences aside and say, you know what, we're going to work together to put our people into political office because we want some of the same things. We want better schools for our kids. We want jobs. We want to start businesses. And we also want to participate in this political arena. And so that's what they did. But you also had um, a white supremacist movement that was still there lingering from what happened during the Civil War, that loss of the Confederacy during the Civil War. They really wanted to revert things back in Wilmington. And so they plotted and they planned. And that's when the whole 1898 massacre happened, that it only didn't, it just didn't affect the, the city of Wilmington, but it affected the whole state of North Carolina because that event ushered in the Jim Crow movement throughout North Carolina and also the rest of the South really took, um, they took heed and really followed that blueprint of let's terrorize African-Americans, let's strip them from their rights to vote and also participate in the political process to run for, you know, council and, and all these other Congress um, political positions. And let's also strip them economically as well. And so the Wilmington massacre was a very key part of American history, not, not just North Carolina history, but American history as well. And it's been hidden for so long. And I'm glad that we were able to really put it out there and put it out there using a grassroots movement as well. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's amazing, man. That's a that's a story that, like you said, it's it's crazy that something that could have been a linchpin to Jim Crow, right, right is something that right. isn't talked about as frequently as Jim Crow itself. Right. right. You know, that's that's and, an amazing thing. And another point I want I forgot to mention that this was actually a coup d'état. And you know, a coup d'etat is an actual overthrow of an existing government. So yep. that's what I think that really kind of makes the Wilmington Massacre different from Tulsa and all these other events is that they actually overthrew the government at the same time of, you know, actually killing African-Americans and actually exiling them from the city. They also removed that whole fusionist government that was happening, which was a mixture of white and black politicians. And so Mm -hmm. they removed all of them by force and then put in their own people in their place. What was the estimated body count of the massacre? It varies. It varies uh, because you got to realize, you know, back then they actually counted deaths in a different way than we do now. Like, for example, talk about say that. if say if someone like so during the massacre, a lot of people fled and hid in the swamp area, which is now the the, the graveyard, the Black Graves Cemetery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so a lot of people fled and hid in that cemetery in the swamps for a few weeks. And this is November. It was cold you know, snowing, you know, raining. And so a lot of people ended up dying just out there being in the cold. And so that doesn't really count 
as right. an actual right. official death, you know, in Damascus. But I think from the state report and other researchers, um, I think close to maybe 30 to 50 were killed. And then we don't know how many actually died, you know, you know, just being in the, the climate of, right. of, of hiding and stuff like that. And then thousands left the city because back then, before the massacre of 1898, it was a little bit more than half um, African-American populated. Mm -hmm. uh, but when wow. you look at the city directories two years later, um, the black population is pretty much cut in half and it's never been able to re recover, you know, since the 1898 massacre. It's like wow. people who died of flu during COVID. Right. We don't give right. them any, you know, we don't give them the proper respect because, you know, you were dying along with a bunch of other people of a known cause and, you know, right. you just get lumped in as a COVID death. Maybe you didn't die at that. We don't, we don't know, but, but it is reminiscent of that. I, I read something recently and because I know how much research goes into making a documentary, especially mm -hmm. one that's good and I love history. So just, there's a little caveat there or, or <laughs> contextualizing what I'm about to say. Right. I read something that said one of the things that really infuriated whites in the South during and after the Civil War, and this was a big point of contention with Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. was that whites in the South ran farms and agriculture that needed slaves for production, but they didn't own boats and the ships that brought slaves over here. It was actually whites in the North. Um, and look, we have Vanderbilt University where I'm at here in Nashville, beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. that, that man was called the Commodore. That wasn't like a good term back then. Right. Like we, we think of it differently now. So he was a brutal guy, Cornelius Vanderbilt, but he was a New York guy. Right. And we have university down here in Nashville, but he was a New York guy. So that's just one example. But basically the idea was, the New York folks would go and boat the slaves back, would port in South Carolina, and I'm sure North Carolina, and I'm sure yeah. Virginia, uh, those places, and they would sell the slaves knowing, but they knew that the law was about to change. So they basically had a fire sale on, on slaves. And then when the white men who had spent their life savings to buy these people couldn't get a refund. They were like, okay. So, so there was this idea that like white people in the South wouldn't be so, you know, burnt up about slavery ending. If the, if the white shippers in the North would have taken their product back, so to speak, or right. refunded the price of the slave, but instead they tricked them. They offloaded on them a product they knew was going to be illegal. Like very, very soon. Right. What do you, did yeah. you, well, have I mean, you read that? Gonna, what do you think about that? <laughs> no, I was, let me jump in on that one. I was going to say, I'm like, it's not just the product that they were selling that they can't get a refund. It's like, wait a second, who's going to do the this whole work? thing is against the law. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> who's going to do They had imagine. I mean, if they taken, think about it like this. I mean, this is a crazy way to think about humans, but you think about basically they were the machinery. Mm -hmm. that made those yep. farms work. So now in today's parlance, right, you say, hey, I'm going to take away your hay baler. I'm going to take away your silos. I'm going to take away all, everything that you've got that allows this farm to work. What's yep. your other option? What is your recourse? Right. Yep. Where do you go? What do you do? And I think that's so I think that that is likely the 
most influential part of or aspect oh, of that oh, change. Oh, no, no, no you, question, so Nick. No, yeah. no question. But that's the part that everybody knows. What mm -hmm. I found remarkable about about this was that it was it was a pie in the face after you already get dunked. Oh yeah, after the fact. It would be like making cigarettes illegal. Yeah, it'd be like making cigarettes illegal, but you don't know they're about to be illegal. But you, but the other part, the selling party does, and they offload truckloads of cigarettes on you at 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 market well, cost. As, at, at, well, exactly, especially at a deal, right? Like you think you got a yeah. discount, you're all happy, <laughs> right? Yeah, and they <laughs> yeah, knew, and it. then when they found that out, it was. And you're right. It's about there's another thing about human nature. It's like mm -hmm. Okay, we see what's happening politically. Maybe we can expect. Maybe we can ex let's let's transition. The, our whole profession is being made illegal. To your point, Nick, like we have no recourse. But yet, the discovery that the shippers knew it was going to be illegal in the north, and they still sold the slaves. I think we think of at least down here in the south, and this is you know this is important because it's the Southern Documentary Fund. Yeah. You know, we're talking to Chris Everett here. Like in the South, what we get told is that the North's hands are clean and they're just right. not. Right. That was what was remarkable about this text. Their hands aren't clean. Right. Yep. Right. And that's, and that's, you know, it goes back. And, and to me, you know, it's, it's not clean for anything. Because yeah. even when you look at the civil rights movement, you know, just learning about the civil rights movement, they made it seem like all the racism during the civil rights movement was in the South. And it wasn't, you know, Malcolm yeah. X, his famous quote, like, you know, as long as you were under underneath the Canadian border, you down south. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> you know, it's always been like that of the whole thing of the north was like the savior, you know, of African-Americans and all this and that. And that's not the case at all. Even when you read the book Sundown Towns and you realize that a lot of those sundown towns were like in the north and Midwest and stuff like that. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Yep. Yeah, I, I I don't think it gets talked about enough because it's right. uncomfortable. It's not easy right. for people to talk about. But I think yeah. it's important to know that without those shippers running in their own business, then slavery in the South isn't even possible, really. Because those are just Southern farmers. A lot of those farmers were broke and poor and were working in the fields along with their slaves. Um, they weren't all on giant sort of plantations and mansions. Um, it, it was a, it was a, a United States group effort to enslave black people. <laughs> so yeah. below, below, can, uh, Canadian border. Yep. That's the, that's the way it was for sure. Okay. Yeah. So wait, real quick, I just want to mention one thing though. So yeah, as please. we're on this topic, cause we got so many things to talk about, uh, yeah, let's yeah, just yeah, talk yeah. about real quick where we can see this film, you know, where is it? You oh, know, yeah. I think it was produced. Oh, yeah. yeah let's promote, let's promote right? the, so, let's promote yeah, this yeah, thing. Let's, exactly. And you're doing, yeah, a, you're doing a part two, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you can see Wilmington on fire right now. You can order it on Amazon. It's available on Amazon. Um, buy it or rent it. Definitely check that out now. Today. Buy it, please. Yeah, buy it. Check it out. Support it. Spread it out. Spread it. You know, spread the word about it. Let everybody know. Also, we're in post-production right now with Wilmington on fire. Chapter two, which really looks at Wilmington today. And so we document Wilmington as it's going through, you know, the year 2020 during the height of the pandemic. Things are locked down. George Floyd is murdered. And so we show what was happening in the city around this time, man, and the different changes that was happening, not only with young people standing up protesting, also the rise of black entrepreneurs and stuff like that around the city and really showing what African-Americans are trying to do 
to really come out of that smoke and that stain of the 1898 mask and really move this city forward. So I'm excited about it. It's some of my best Me work too. today. Uh, we stepped our production game up a lot, you know, second, <laughs> second go around, you know, we had a little budget now, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm looking awesome. forward to it. Hold that thought. Cause I, I do want to, I do want to like ask just from a technical filmmaker standpoint, right. when you're stepping your game up and yeah. you got a little bit more budget, right. where do you apply those budget dollars and there's some questions behind that that me and Nick, I, I think, would love to ask you. But right. before we get too far into that, it's that time, Nick. <laughs> Things we should know. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Papa Bear, welcome to the conversation. This is a Chris Everett documentary-focused Things We Should Know. Papa Bear, take it away. Okay. Which documentary film holds the record for all-time greatest worldwide box office receipts? Ooh, I think I know the answer already. So I'm, I'm going to keep it quiet because I obviously don't want to give it to you, Jokers. Um, well, if I don't stump you, we have three more. Okay. Look at that. Look at that. Uh, All right. You know what's crazy is I think I know the answer, and I think I, but I don't know the name of the, no, no, I know it. I know it. Uh, I know it. Okay. I got mine. Do you guys think you have yours? You know, I'm going to work through it while we're having this conversation. I'm like, there's. <laughs> All right. I feel confident. What the, the more confident you feel on these, the harder you fall when you're wrong. Hey, That's been my experience with things we should know. Hey, Chris, how about this? I'm so confident right. in my answer. I want to give it right now. Okay. You ready? I'm mm -hmm. going for, I'm going for Chris and Chris. I'm going to give it to you right now. It's got to be happy feet, bro. I'm not going to count happy be. feet. I'm not going <laughs> to count happy feet against you. Although that is a documentary, just like, um, just, just like, uh, what do people say all the time? They say, what's that movie? Rudy. They always say Rudy's yeah. a documentary. Rudy's a documentary. That's right. And yeah. then Joe yeah. Montana always gets pissed off because like, none of that happened. Because <laughs> <laughs> Joe Montana was actually there. He, like, he knew yeah, right, Rudy. He's, right, like, right. he's like, yeah, it wasn't like that. Um, yeah, right. Sorry, Joe. You need to yeah. get the fuck out of here. We think that's a documentary. You're right. All yeah, right, Papa yeah, Bear. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're going to check back in with you in a few. Okay. Yep. All right. So oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So Chris, I, I want to jump back in before I forget. Right. What does it mean for you? Just technical filmmaker wise, you have more budget. Right. Where did you apply those dollars? How did your production get better? Well, you know, with, e with each project, you know, you live and you learn, you know, even with uh, my first couple of projects, I was like, you know what? I messed up. <laughs> but the next time I want to, if I do get a little bit more money, I want to apply it in different things. The okay. first thing I did was I said, you know what? I want my sound to be on point this time. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to shortchange that. I think a lot of filmmakers don't realize that, you know, you can get away with, with visual, but if your sound is jacked up and janky, man, you know, the, the audience is not going to, it's not forgiven. Yeah, <laughs> so that's right. I said, you know, I want to have, I want to get two, two sound guys, you know, a main sound person, a person to back them up. And so that's what we did. So I really invested more of my dollars in the sound um, aspect of this project and also cinematography as well. Cause I wanted to step my game up cinematography wise too, visually. And so we stepped it up visual and sound wise um, for, for this production. Is that about yeah, getting perfect. a better DP or a better camera? 
I would say a little bit of both. Um, the first the first DP I had was actually great. Uh, my man Dante, I got to give him a shout out. Um, Isaiah Dante Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him, man, like right out of high school. He's pretty much like, I guess, LeBron James of cinematography <laughs> because he's in Hollywood now, big time. He's big yeah. time Hollywood DP, man. So I knew it was going to be like a one and done situation. Like, like you had him for this school. moment. Yeah. Yep. And that was it, man. Because as soon as we finished, um, the first Wilmington on fire, man. He started getting booked up for a whole bunch of stuff in New York and L.A. The rest is history. And we shot the first Wilmington on fire, man, with, with a DSLR, Canon 5D. Wow. Um, and he, But he was just great, you know, and I knew that he was talented. And he was going to go places because he was doing such amazing things with just that little DSLR, and he made it look great. And so I said, you know what? I want to step it up just a little bit more. And so we got the Canon three, you know, Canon C three hundred. I'm a yeah. great DP. Um, my man Damian Core out of Washington D.C. Um, we've been wanting to work together anyway because him and Dante they've worked together in the past. So I kind of got you know kind of kept it in the family, so to speak. And so he did an amazing job lensing um, this thing. And then we had a great sound team, and also we brought back everyone else post production wise, like my my um, composer Matthew Head who went on to be big time as well, but he still rocks with me. You know what I'm saying? He still gives yeah, me yeah. a good break. But he does a lot of um, music for, he does, uh, he scores the the TV show P-Valley for stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he does a lot of joints, man. He did the um, the basketball documentary that came on Showtime about, what's my man? Um, uh, Jeremy Lin? Nah, the other brother that um, kind of took, he didn't stand up for the uh, for the national anthem back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, Chris Jackson. Yes. Yeah, they just yeah. did a they did a documentary on him a few months ago on Showtime. He I love Chris that. Jackson, man. Yeah, he scored that that project as yeah. well, and so he's scoring the new Wilmington on Fire film for me as well. So, you know, just kind of stepping my game up visually and sound wise, and just playing around with some things. We also are working on an official soundtrack as well for this. So we got some great local artists and some artists around North Carolina that are going to provide some, some music for this thing too. Cause you know, I really, when I try to do my documentaries, I want to do them like their major motion pictures, you know, cause mm-hmm. I grew up in that time, man, where the soundtrack a lot of times was better than the, than the film, you know? And yeah, so right. I've always <laughs> yeah. been a sucker for a good soundtrack, man. I always listen to them when I'm in my car working out. And so I've always wanted to have like a nice soundtrack to even, even if I'm doing documentaries, I still want something for folks to take home and also listen to as well and still think about our film. Do you feel pressure to put Petey Pablo on the soundtrack? We might do that. I might do that. We might do that. We played around with it with the first Wilmington on fire. And I've seen you guys a copy of it. Uh, We just put it, you know, we put something out, man, on SoundCloud. It was pretty decent, man. We had a lot of artists that want to contribute. Like I said, we didn't really have a budget. So, you know, everyone kind of contributed, you know, what they could for free. And it turned out pretty solid. But like I said, since we got our money up a little bit, we got a little budget. We're really trying to, you know, pay folks and really put together a solid project. So, yeah, but that's unique. Well, I know man. what you're thinking. I mean, to put that soundtrack, you know, I'm just saying you put that soundtrack on a yeah. documentary. That's not a thing that people yeah. think about, you know. Yeah, right. So to right. me, that is highly unique. And it is a way to bring in a, a different population into the documentary right. world. So I think that's right. genius. And I think that that especially for documentaries, uh, you know, that highlight a specific culture. I think yeah. that's the way to get those folks to watch these things and understand the importance mm-hmm. right. that it has right. on their culture. And as you know, honestly, yeah. to some degree, define the culture. It's to a degree, oh, yeah. define the music that they're listening to. So I think oh, yeah. it's awesome, man. And I hope that that soundtrack blows things up for you and for the film yeah. itself. 
Oh yeah, for sure. Because um, you know, even with Wilmington on Fire, when you watch it, we blend in some elements. So you know, Terrence Blanchard, um, the great jazz musician, he's also a great film composer. He composes a lot of Spike Lee's films. You mm-hmm. know, I've always been a huge fan of Spike Lee's soundtracks and scores. Um, that jazzy type of feel. And so when I met Matt some years ago, I said, man, I really like Terrence Blanchard's style. I like what Spike did on When the Levees Broke and yep. his other documentaries. That's the type of sound I want kind of throughout the film. Now, when we start the film, when you watch the opening title sequence, we have like a slamming hip hop track that kind of mm-hmm. opens up, you know? So I kind of got that concept to open it up with like a hip hop track that matches the, the theme of the story by one of my mentors, Pete Chapman. He did a great documentary years ago about the 761st Black Tank Battalion in World War II. It's called mm-hmm. 761st. And he opened up his opening title sequence with the uh, most deaf song, Umi Says. And it Umi was dope. I was like, man, yeah, it was tight, man, how he yeah, put it yeah. together. Because that was my first time seeing someone integrate hip hop into a documentary that wasn't a hip hop documentary. You know right. what I'm saying? I yeah. said, you know what? I want to do the same thing. So I hit one of my guys up in Atlanta, my man Nestle. He's a battle rapper out of Atlanta. And I said, man, I need, I need something, man. You got to send me some stuff. And so he sent me three tracks. I kind of listened to the first two. I said, ah, that doesn't work. And the last one I heard, I said, you know what? This is it. I want to use this for the opening title sequence. And it was a track that he just never used. It was just unreleased. He never used, did anything with it. And a lot of people think we actually made that song for the film. For the film, and yeah. we didn't. And it was just a song that he just never used. So I love utilizing, you know, my connections. And I also love working with local and independent musicians. You know what I'm saying? Because a lot of them are wanting to get into the film industry somewhat. They want to be a part of something new and fresh and something that's meaningful. And so this is a way for me to do that, you know, through my documentaries. Well, I love Filmmakers want to be musicians and yep. musicians want to be filmmakers. Yep. <laughs> that's true. I guess that yeah, happens all I, the time. I believe it. Yep. I believe it. So, but opening so with that, how, man, how are you is thinking? Like, is oh, awesome. go ahead, Nick. Sorry. No, I was going to say opening with that is awesome just because, especially for certain generations, they oh, yeah. will listen to the jazz. But if you open yep. with the jazz, they might think, well, this wasn't made for me. Right. right? This was right. made for another right. generation. Whereas right. folks of an older generation are willing to tolerate the hip hop, <laughs> right? Even if they're not in it. Because they understand that they're embarking upon a documentary that's going to educate them. So you're not going to alienate that generation by using hip hop, whereas you might push out some of the the younger folks by introing with jazz. So, again, I love the idea of it because it does open up a different population to the documentary work that you're doing. And we also close with a hip hop song as well um, called It's a Massacre. We put that together specifically for the film. And it knocks, man. It knocks hard. And it's really about the story of a young boy, young black boy looking, you know, through his eyes of the massacre and running, you know what I'm saying? And seeing what's happening. And it's very captivating. So you see the ending credits and all that stuff and you hit his track. It was great, man. How we put this project together with very little money, you know, from beginning to end. Yeah. To your point, Nick, I think it's so, so smart because we have staff members that like, they won't watch a movie unless the main character wears a cape like or, or has like a magic wand in their hand. Yeah. And it's like, oh, come on, Ken, how do we get you to watch this movie? It's so good, but got to be got to have a cape on, got to have some tights on, got to have a yeah. wand. And so right. just bringing the audience in first and then letting them see, hey, this is this is going to be good. And then hit them with other right. things is smart. I, I am curious. I know, Nick, you're thinking about this, too. Mm-hmm. What about marketing? How are mm. you approaching marketing? This film, how did you approach marketing the previous doc? 
Well, you know, we did a great job with marketing, um, the first one I did. So when I first put this project together, like I currently live in Wilmington, North Carolina now. I was living in Durham, North Carolina for about five years. Mm -hmm. But before that, I was living in Little Laurenburg, North Carolina, a small country town. It's about 40 minutes from Lumberton. Uh, people are familiar with Fayetteville, North Carolina. It's about 40 minutes from Fayetteville. Nothing to it. And so I had to figure out the Internet. You know, I was doing I was coming up to Wilmington on the weekends. Wilmington's about an hour and a half from Laurenburg. And so I was coming there, me and Dante were going up there filming back and forth, going to different places, doing what we do. But I said, you know what? I got to start promoting this thing early. So I want to really bring people on this journey with me of creating this film, of doing the research. And so I started just doing a lot of, you know, behind the scenes stuff, like a lot of BTS photos and building up my social media and also doing stuff like this, you know, getting on any and everybody's podcast I possibly could. Because I think this was around the time when blog talk was popular. You know, yeah, everyone yeah. was doing the blog talk radio on podcast. And so if you had a podcast, I wanted to be on it to talk about what we had going on. And eventually, you know, people, you never know who's watching. And so while we were doing that and doing it and building our audience and building, we built up a lot of anticipation. And so people were always hitting me up. Hey, when this thing coming out, we need it. We need it. And so I said, you know what? I still don't have the money to finish it, but I'm just going to do like I've seen a lot of hip hop artists and other musicians do. They'll go on the radio, promote a single, and say, yeah, you know, the album's coming out in a couple months. Then the album don't even come out. <laughs> so I was doing So I said, you know, I'm going to do that, too. I'm going to keep hyping up. I'm going to put out a new clip, a couple of trailers, and, you know, and do like what I saw hip-hop artists do, man. Yeah. And we just kept hyping it up, and people would keep putting me on this show. And then eventually we got finished shooting everything. And so the thing is, I go back to a lot of that pre-marketing. So it caught wind of an NBA player. You know what I'm saying? All the stuff what I was doing. And so Mark Anthony Neal, he's out of Duke University um, at the Department of African-American Studies and Culture. Um, he actually did a couple of stories about what I was doing. You know, some of that pre-marketing stuff and dropped a couple of clips and was letting people know, hey, this guy's making this film on, you know, Wilmington on Fire. Check it out. And so he has a cool blog that everyone checks out. And so David West, he's retired now. Yeah, I know David West. David yeah, West so is David, yeah, so David West hit him up and said, man, um, is this film out? You know, because I want to I want to get a DVD. I want to check this thing out. And so Mark hits me up. He said, man, David West reached out to me, man. And uh, I told him that you're not finished with the film. And, you know, maybe he can, can help you fit, cross that finish line. I said, man, connect me. And so I didn't believe it at first. I'm like, man, I know this dude in the because they was still playing in the NBA. Yeah, yeah. I said, man, I know this dude in the NBA is not paying attention to what I'm doing down here in Lawrenburg. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so, so I connected with his business manager, me and his business manager. We kind of went back and forth for a couple months. And he's like, look, man, we're going to show you that, that we're really serious about helping you out with this thing or partnering with you to finish this. Come to Charlotte. David, they're coming into town. They're playing the Charlotte team. We got you some tickets. Come, come hang out with me, and I'm going to introduce you to David in person. I said, I bet. So, man, it's like I go up to Charlotte, get me a hotel. I'm like, man, I cannot mess this up. <laughs> you know, this is my opportunity to get the finishing funds to do this. And I said, you know what? Let me relax. Let me just be myself. Yep. You know, I know what I'm doing. Everything is shot. We just need just an extra push for the finish line. And so I went to the game. It was cool. Had great seats. Met David afterwards. And, and the brother's a great guy, man. Found out he's from North Carolina, gone to North Carolina. He loves African-American history and culture. And he really wanted to get behind what we were doing. And he said, man, we're going to make this thing happen. We want to partner with you to get this thing finished. And they gave me the rest of the funds uh, to finish post-production, wow. man. The rest wow. is history. That's yeah. beautiful. 
Yeah. Yeah, honestly, it's beautiful, man. Like, and another part, and another part of that marketing came with the premiere. And so we premiered Wilmington on Friday, November November of 2015, at the Kukaloris Film Festival. Kukaloris is big in Wilmington; it's one of their biggest mm-hmm. festivals. And so I didn't know what to expect, but we hyped it up so much over the years that people just wanted to get on it and was ready. And we sold out, man. I think we actually jammed up the ticket system. That's how many people <laughs> want to get tickets, man. People were scalping tickets online. I had somebody come up to me, try to scalp. They didn't, people didn't know who I was, you know what I'm saying? Right, so, yeah. <laughs> and somebody tried to sell some tickets, man, to me, scalping them, man. And so, um, so the day of the event, we had like a, like a two block line wrapped around the, the venue, um, Thalian Hall. And it was very, I really wanted Thalian Hall because it's symbolic. One, because that's the place where the people behind the massacre met. Um, yeah. to plot and plan. So I said, we got to do it here at this main stage. And it's 550 seats. It's the biggest stage. And we sold it out, man. We packed in 550 in there and we still hold the um, the most attended screening ever in that festival's history. Congratulations, man. Yeah, That's amazing. That's, that's amazing. That's, yeah, that's Chris, so yeah, I, yeah, let's say both Chris's. I got to say that one of the most amazing things to me about that journey is it feels like it's all family. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, the, yeah. it's all people who, and this, you know, Chris, so Chris B, Bonsai Chris and I are always talking about uh, one of our kind of core principles when it comes to filmmaking. It's probably transcends filmmaking. It probably, right. we, we brought it into filmmaking probably because this is something that we believe in our lives as well. Right. Uh, basically, we have this, this thought that, you know, no mercenaries. Right. Right. We don't want to work with people who are just coming in for the job. Right. You know, so we say that to filmmakers, no mercenaries, zero tolerance for mercenaries. So what we're seeing with this project was everyone who was a part of it seemed invested. Right. So even the folks that, you know, there might be two, three, four, five times removed from you. They're not in your circle. Right. But they're related to people in your circle and they come on because they care about you. They care about what you're trying to say. And those are the people that you bring in like family, because again, they're not here just for themselves. They're not here for a job. They're here for this project and what it can do for the community. And that is amazing. That's why I think both Chris and I are just smiling over here grinning, you know, because it's just, that's what you want in a film. You want a family to come together and make this thing special. And that's, that sounds like exactly what happened. And the same thing happened with part two. Um, the same thing happened with Wilmington on Fire 2. Um, you know, I kind of always had the concept of wanting to do a follow up to this thing. And so when I would screen the first film, I would always kind of pitch the second one. You know, during the Q&A's, I was kind of always throw a soft pitch because you never know who's out there in the audience. That's right. You know, say right. it could be another producer. It could be another investor. And that's what happened. Um, and so I was lucky enough to meet um, a, a, one, a tech guy. He owns a couple of tech companies here in Wilmington. He came to a couple of my screenings. And so he reached out to uh, my entertainment lawyer, who he knows. And so my lawyer hit me up. He said, man, you know, such and such, man. He came to a couple of your screenings and he's been really inspired by the film. And he really wants to start doing more things in the community. And he heard you talking about doing a part two to this. And he wants to give you some money to start it, to get it going. And I said, well, let's set it up. And so I met him for coffee. Great guy. And um, he said, man, I'm going to go ahead and write you a $30,000 check right now to go ahead and get this thing going because I like what you're doing. And I like the uh, the momentum that you built with the first one. The first film changed my life. And now it's made me want to do you know, better things in the community. I know the second one can do the same and continue that. And so I want to, I believe in you. 
And so that's that's how that happened. That's how I got the startup money to get that going. And then also when George Floyd was murdered and then we all were on lockdown, I started getting a lot of celebrity support. So like Hillary Burton Morgan, um, people remember the show One Tree Hill yeah, um, yeah. back in the day. You know, they shot that here in Wilmington. And so Hillary uh, was on that show. And so she hit me up. Somebody told her about Wilmington on Fire. And then she tagged me on social media on IG. I was like, man, what all these people follow me for? It's like 400 <laughs> people started following me out the blue. I was like, these bots or something? Right. I scrolled down. I was like, man, why is Hillary Burton tagging me in something? <laughs> you know, and so I checked it out. And, you know, she gave me a shout out. And so I hit her up in the DM, said, hey, thank you. I really appreciate that. And so she hit me back and we just kept going back and forth. And we, we had a phone call and she was like, hey, I like what you're doing. I heard you're trying to do a part two. I want to help support it. And so she put me on our IG Live um, thing just to talk about Wilmington on Fire. Had like a million views. And you know, her husband, wow. you know, her husband is Jeffrey Dean Morgan, you know, from The Walking mm. Dead. Yeah. And um, so I was able to tap into her audience, the One Tree Hill audience, and to his audience, you know. And so that just brought a whole bunch of followers that didn't even know about the first Wilmington on Fire. They wanted to check it out. And now there are a lot of them are, you know, anticipating the second one as well. And then the other celebrity, that really showed a lot of love and support is uh, Peyton Reed, um, the director of the Ant-Man movies uh, for Marvel. Oh, wow. um, he actually contributed to one of my crowdfunding things for Wilmington on Fire 2. I saw his email, I saw his name come through. I said, hold on, man, I know this ain't Peyton Reed. They're, they're <laughs> doing Peyton the Reed. Ant-Man joints, right? Yeah. And I hit him up. He said, yeah, man, hey, it's me. Um, and then he, I found out he was from Raleigh. He's from Raleigh, North Carolina as mm-hmm. well. And went to wow. UNC um, Chapel Hill. He's heard a lot about the story. Someone sent him the film. And he checked it out. He heard that I was doing a part two. And he started following my social media. Because I saw that he had started following my Twitter page. I was like, why is Peyton Reed following me for? You know what I'm saying? Wow. And then, you know, he contributed to the campaign, man. And, we, you know, we, we, we chat. We chat, man. He's been a, a huge inspiration to me. Um, and he wants to be involved, man. So he's a producer on it. And also Hillary as well. And so we got some, some, some solid, you know, people, man, that really wanted to see this thing. Um, not just the first one come out but the second one as well. So I don't know. I think it was luck to me. I think it was luck, but I was prepared for it as well. Yeah. And I'm not there sure it is. it's necessarily pure luck. Yeah. Cause I think you put in a lot of work in you and yeah. those opportunities found you because you took action. Right. The thing that's incredible. And Nick, I think me and you can learn a lot from this, which is, you know, we have a structure in, in how we market things and, you know, our core business is marketing for independent film. And, you know, we have contracted social influencers, but to go out and find people who are from the hometown of the filmmaker to to find people who want to, I mean, a million views for zero dollars. Yeah. Like that's free. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And she'll post, she'll post, she'll, 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 you know, she, she posts the trailers and the thing is, man, you know, it looks like we're going to have a premiere this November and see, all this is marketing. And yeah. so I said, you know, I want to premiere it this November because this November is the 125 years of the yeah. anniversary of the massacre. We got we got Hillary. We got Peyton. They ready to roll to marketing. And so we got a venue that's going to be 15, 1500 seats and we'll probably sell it out soon as tickets go on sale. You know the saying? live community events are so important. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you you make a great time for those 1500 people, Chris. Yep. And they're going to tell three people each. Exactly. And it's just going to snowball from there. Like, I'm really excited to see the launch and and just how you pull it off and and some of the strings you have to pull, some of the things that don't work. I'd love to make sure we have you back on after it comes out to talk about your experience through the path of just like launching this thing. 
in the most optimal way possible for an indie documentary to launch. Yeah. And I've learned a lot, you know, with the first one we did, pre- I did pretty well um, because with the first one, like I said, I didn't know what was going to happen. So I actually enrolled back in college <laughs> when I was about to put out the first one. I went to community <laughs> college. So I was like, man, this yeah. might not work out. And then <laughs> when, once I saw we sold out <clears throat> at that festival, I convinced my grandparents that, hey, can I borrow a thousand dollars? Because I want to rent the same video out because it was a whole bunch of people that didn't get to see it. And I oh, said, wow. I know I can sell it out and give you all some some money on top of that thousand to rent this thing. And so I showed them because they came to the screening, the premiere. And so they went ahead and gave it to me, you know, because they were there. They witnessed it. And so we ended up doing it again, man, selling it out. And then after that, I ended up um, booking a thousand seat joint at the uh, on the campus of UNC Wilmington, the college there, a thousand yeah. seater. And we ended up working out a deal with the school. I said, look, I'll do a whole free screening for the whole school staff, everything for free. In the in like early morning, I would say late morning, eleven o'clock, twelve. In return for me doing this for free for you guys, let me get Keenan Auditorium for free and let yep. me keep the box. And they were cool with it. And so soon I signed up to contract. And then man, I didn't pay nothing. All I did was maybe pay a couple hundred dollars some posters and flyers. We ended up putting this eight hundred people in there, fifteen dollars a ticket. And wow. after that, Boom. and so that was like, man, I made about. And when I do like seminars, I show people the check stubs. You know what I'm yeah. saying? On the screen, on the PowerPoint. I want people to see that it's real. You know yeah. what I'm saying? A lot of people would tell you something, but I said, man, I'm going to show y'all the check stubs of what we got those first two screenings. You know, 8,000, 7,000 clear. You know, and so after that, I told my professors and them, the, the, the teachers um, at the community college, I said, hey, I got to quit because, <laughs> because <laughs> I can go back to, I said, man, this, this is the most money I've ever made in like a month period ever in my life. Right. And yeah. I got, and I got more screenings coming up throughout North Carolina that's looking like they're going to sell out too. And I said, I got to run with this. I, I, you know, I'll go back to school later, but this is a once in a lifetime opportunity because before that I was just going to make the film and just go back to college and just like, maybe I'll show it at a library or here and there or sell a couple of DVDs here and there. But I didn't think I can actually create a business and, and and a platform that will lead on to doing other films as well. I never thought about it until those first couple of screenings. And I said, you know what? I think I got something here. And let me put all my chips in on. Yeah, here, that's here, the man. key right there. Like, you know, Chris, you know, I'll say Bonsai Chris and I always talk about that platform, you know, yeah. a world building, right? It has to be bigger than your film. That's that's the idea. Right. This isn't this isn't a film. This is an experience. This is an education. This is a cultural immersion. It is something, like you said, the you know, the guy who gave you the money uh to start the second one, he said, This changed my life, man. Like yeah. And, and if you continue to do this, which isn't a film, you see what I'm saying? It's an experience. There's right. something else. There's an right. education, all this that's in there. That platform is what the business is built around and it perpetuates right. itself. As long as you're creating great right. content that continues right. to educate and inspire, then the people that you're educating and inspiring are going to want to continue to be part of this thing that you're doing. So I think it's an amazing thing. And I think it's something that other documentary filmmakers who are listening as well as filmmakers in general really need to understand it needs to be beyond just the film you're making it needs to be greater than that and then you can live this life that you're living creating new content in that same vein it's a good segue into your work with the southern documentary fund um you started off i think program directing and now you've been elevated to the artistic director 
Uh, can you just talk a little bit about how the program, well, how you got involved, first of all, yeah. why you were doing all this documentary work, right. <laughs> like how you found the time to do it, right. and then how it helps filmmakers. Because yeah. I know that just even in my own journey into film, coming out of the profession I was in, there's a lot of people who should be on your side, right. but are kind of like, passive aggressively mad that you stepped out of your lane. Right. <laughs> and I don't, I'm just curious how you deal with people that knew you as one version of yourself. And now you're this filmmaker and now you've got some success and they're looking at you a little different. And, and then how can the Southern documentary fund help right. those filmmakers get over that and get over financial right. and all the right. obstacles that are in the way of those documentary folks. Right. And then of course, how you got involved as well. Well, I was, I would say I got involved. Um, and like I was telling you earlier, you know, I was living in Durham. Um, so th the reason why I moved from Laurenburg to Durham, um, uh, was that I accepted a job with the center for documentary studies at Duke university. Um, okay. they loved what they loved the marketing that I was doing with Wilmington on fire. They were very impressed. Um, the position was open for a communications manager, um, with full frame documentary film festival. And so full frame is a, is a program of the center for doc studies at Duke university. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I did like about five interviews and it, it's a very rigorous um, interview process, man. They put you through like five interviews and different social media and graphic design tests. And, and so I, I aced all of them and ended up getting the position. And so that's where I, you know, I moved to Durham. And then that's when I actually found out about the Southern Documentary Fund uh, because someone there reached out to me and wanted me to be on a panel for the um, Southern Documentary Fund's annual convening. It's kind of like a documentary conference that they do every year. And so that was my first introduction um, to the Southern Documentary Fund, because before then, man, it was just I was in Laurenburg. I was all independent. I was just trying to do my own thing. And I didn't know about these other entities out here that could actually help me. Um, and so being on that panel, meeting some great filmmakers and, and funders and, and other um, folks in the documentary field, I was man, I was hooked. I was like, man, I got to stay connected with this organization. And yeah. so I actually applied for a grant. Um, the following year and end up getting it is for my um, my other documentary that I could talk about later. Um, but doing Wilmington on Fire, I actually started doing a, a martial arts documentary, which was in which Master. is in post production. Yeah, Grandmaster, the Vic Moore story. And so that was the first organization to give me any type of grant, period. And they gave me like a five thousand dollar grant. And then that actually helped me as well, because the first time I didn't get it. They gave me feedback on why I didn't get it and what I need to touch up on. And then the following year, I ended up applying to the same grant and end up getting it. And so they did a lot for me because other places I, when I applied to grants, they didn't give me no feedback at all. And so they pride themselves of, we want to help you as a filmmaker. Yeah, you might not get this grant, but we're going to tell you why and what you need to do to improve um, for that grant. So not only you can reapply to us, but you can also take some of those notes to apply to other grants as well. And so I did that and ended up getting other grants at other places. And so SDF really played an instrumental part of my progression and going to the next level. And so when I was working at Full Frame for those years, a position came open, became open at SDF and to be a program manager. And mm -hmm. so I said, you know, let me think about it. Let me think about it. And um, so I said, you know what, it's, it's time to move on. Can't really do too much at Full Frame anymore. And also I'm tired of communications. I want to be able to, to work with filmmakers in a more direct way and have more of an impact uh, with their careers, you know, like they had on, like SDF had on mine. 
And so I took the position. And so, you know, once becoming a part of SDF, you know, being a filmmaker, I think helps me out a lot because filmmakers can, re- I can relate to filmmakers. You know, right. I know some of the struggles they're going through. I know some of the challenges they're going through um, because I'm in the same, I'm in the trenches with them. You know, I go through some of the same things and I, you know, I've, been through some of those same battles, especially for new filmmakers, you know, so I can kind of give them some guidance of what to look for, what not to do, what to do uh, when you're a first time filmmaker, you know, things that I wish I would have known and would have had in the beginning of my career. And so, you know, I, I just pride myself, man, of really, you know, working with this organization and we do so much, you know, we do several things. Like I said, the, the annual conference, we just did that last month. It was great, sold out. We had sold out panels, we had sold out film screenings. And that was our first one since the pandemic, you know, since Mm -hmm. 2019. And so folks were eager. We were able to launch that again. We have a fiscal sponsorship program where we offer fiscal sponsorship for documentary projects and documentary makers. We do an annual grant, which we're going to launch that um, July, July 17th. What's Um, the grant amount? It's 10,000. We choose five, five film filmmakers, 10 grand. And we do that every year as well. Uh, we also have a mentorship program, which is very cool. So if you ever received a grant from us or if you are fiscally sponsored by us, you get to participate for free at our mentorship program. And so our mentorship program, we get industry professionals from all over the country. And so Zoom in the pandemic actually helped our mentorship program even become in existence because now, you know, we can get on Zoom and people can get their mentorship just like that. So We've had filmmakers that live in L.A., New York, Canada, all of that. And and our filmmakers are able to talk to these folks. These people have won at Sundance. Uh, we've had people that work at distribution companies, um, all of that, you know, be our mentors. And we pay the mentors and everything. We get a grant for that so our mentors can get paid for their time and expertise. And then also so that our filmmakers can participate in this for free. And so our filmmakers love it. Um, and also we do like different screening series programs. We have a, a work in progress program called Fresh Docs, where if you're one of our makers, whether you got a grant or fiscally sponsored by us and you get to that rough cut stage of your project, we pretty much pay for the venue. We help you craft some some questions that you want the audience to kind of look at, think about so that you can take those questions back to the edit edit room after the screening and fine tune some things and get ready for, you know, your festival run or premiere and stuff like that. And so that's, that's, those are some of the things we do. And we also partner with other film festivals across the South as well to do different parties and documentary mixers and support Southern documentaries as a whole. Yeah, man, I got to get with you, man. Cause th- that lineup of services is so hard to execute. Yeah. <laughs> like I know that people might be listening to this and, and feel like it's like just, you know, the normal just the everyday, hey, yeah. we're we're a fund, we're you know we're uh, a nonprofit, we're a five hundred one c three. This is what we do. I can just tell you, being on on uh, a couple of five hundred one c three boards, yeah, it's a real challenge to have consistent mentorship, consistent education, consistent yeah. screenings, finding consistent venues, especially in a world where people are less and less, you know, apt to give you their space for free. And, yeah. and they don't want to feel like they're always having to rock for the love, so to right. speak, right. right. To quote a mortal technique, uh, <laughs> like that's, you know, that's, that's kind of that, that to, to do it at the level you guys are doing it is, is remarkable. So I just want to point that out and, and highlight it and right. definitely got to get with you, maybe get some, 
some pointers that I could share with some of these other board members and yeah, say, hey, this is how know. they're able to pull this off. Like we we should emulate that and copy that. Are, are there any documentary filmmakers that we that you guys are working with that you're like, yeah. hey, he or she is coming up like they're the next we, it's a couple it's a couple of uh projects that we we pride ourselves in man we just had one um actually from our um our founder cynthia hill she started mm. sdf 20 yep. years ago and mm-hmm. so she still she still comes through us she still lets us fiscally sponsor her project so she has a project out right now she's a legend she does a lot of true crime documentaries she has she has a documentary right now hbo max just came out a couple weeks ago called burden of proof and okay, uh, check that out and she also okay. did the um, what's the the young lady that was on Clueless back in the day, Brittany Murphy. Yeah. She did that. She did that documentary for HBO as well. That was a good documentary. Yeah, she did. That. I think, yeah, that, I think that most people think that Brittany Murphy just OD'd, right? But there was a lot of backstory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mob ties, everything, right? Yep. If I'm remembering correctly, I think so. I think so. But yeah, she that yeah. was our founder. She she did those um, those docs. Um, also, we have another um, two. Filmmakers D.L. Anderson and Matt Durning, they did a film called Stay Prayed Up. Um, it's a great gospel documentary about a, um, a gospel group here in near Raleigh, North Carolina, here in North Carolina, um, called The Branchettes. And that film is out, available now. It's been screening all over the country. It's available on Amazon. I think it's on Tubi. Um, it's also on PBS as well. Um, also, another another documentary that we're definitely looking forward to should be out maybe later this year or next year. Um, you guys familiar with the hip hop group Little Brother with Knife Wonder, Fonte, and all them back in the day? No, yeah, no, yeah. no, 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 no Knife Wonder though. Yeah, well, so Little Brother was a they were legendary hip hop group. You know, Drake, he was influenced by him. Uh, Questlove, all of them, and Knife Wonder. Oh, wow. You know, he's like a big hip hop producer now. Yeah, uh, but he was their main, you know, beat maker then. And so uh, we have a filmmaker that we actually sponsored that project. Um, it's called May the Lord Watch, the Little Brother Story. And mm-hmm. so they're they're finishing that up now. And so we're very excited about that. And because they're they're Durham, they're a Durham group, Durham yeah. Roots. And that's where we're kind of from as well. And so it's going to be cool to collaborate with them to really get that out. Um, yeah. They have Chris Love in it, a whole bunch of people in it as well. Who's doing the Jodeci documentary? Yeah, <laughs> who's doing the Jonas? He Come on, be next, right? It's gotta be. Come next. on, uh, you yeah. get everything. You get church. You get Devonte Swing. I'm down yeah. to do it. You know, if we got the fund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. We yeah. need to. We need. We need that story before yeah. it gets too far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was gonna say they went from, the they went from church to boys to freaking you. Yeah. No, they were still church boys when they're freaking you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I wanted to mention is that the Southern Documentary Fund. Uh, supports projects that are in the South, but yeah. also about the South. Yeah. So yeah. that is a, a, a an important factor here because you could oh, yeah. be out of LA, right? Right. But you're making right. something that celebrates or educates or inspires about the South right. and SDF right. will still support those projects as well. Right. And it's a case by case basis. Um, you know, really, mm-hmm. like I said, you know, the reason why Cynthia started this thing 20 years ago uh, which really, you know, I admire her for doing it because no one did it but her, was that back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, to to get the access to the resources, the access to the connections, you had to move to New York. You had to move to mm-hmm. L.A. or the Bay Area where these, where, where you know, to, to do something in documentary. And she was like, you know what, why can't we just stay here and build something yep. here in the South? Because 
really the a lot of the most interesting stories are in the South or based in the South anyway. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So why can't we just be here? Um, you know, cost of living is cheaper. Um, you have, you know, it's, it's great, you know, decent weather. You got beach, you got mountains, you got city. You know what I'm saying? You got these great stories. Why can't we just have it here and build an ecosystem here? And so that's what it's all about, man, is really not only just promoting these type of stories, but also having our filmmakers, you know what, stay here. You don't have to go to New York or L.A. And also, I've been trying to recruit people from New York or L.A. to come here. What do you think about creating a WGA South? We got one East and we got one West. And to be frank, you know, WGA East is about New York. Right. It's not about the Southeast. Right. I was thinking about starting a WGA South, actually. I was thinking about that a month ago. Because, you know, you got, you know, you got Atlanta, you know, Georgia is is very Mm -hmm. big. And then also, you know, North Carolina is not a slouch either because before Atlanta, you know, a lot of stuff was made in North Carolina. You know, we kind of, we dropped the ball, you know, years ago with some things, but North Carolina is still a viable um, film, you know, industry hub, you know? And so I think having North Carolina, also, you know, you got South Carolina in the mix, but especially Georgia. I'm surprised there isn't, you know, a WGA East. I mean, yeah, South. Nick, we, Nick, we gotta, we gotta get on that, Nick. We gotta, yeah, we gotta think yeah, about how yeah. we're going to do that because, well, because the reality <laughs> is, with North Carolina in the South is the locations. Yeah, yeah. like mm-hmm. you can shoot anything down here. You know, yeah, we that's have what I'm so many yeah, cool, cool features and, and, and cost that, that play because because it plays too, like yeah. a, a, a bunch of different places. Yes, and cost yeah. of living for sure. Yep. Well, I yeah. can't speak about Nashville right now in Costa Rica. Yeah, that's a, that's a different story. I just, yeah, it's getting, it's getting, it's getting Get pricey. pricey. It's well, getting you know pricey. why? Because you keep attracting all those people from New York. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so, yep. so it's Chris Everett's it's, it's, it's fault. Yeah, it's Chris Everett's fault. Be now we figured it out. Now we figured yeah. it out. Exactly, exactly. No, no, one yeah, of I read some article, Nick, that said yeah. uh, the average rent here now is 2368 it's happened like that in Wilmington too. It's crazy, right? And yeah. so they kind of they did a story earlier this year about how the film industry is kind of making an impact on the city of Wilmington, like because yeah. the film industry is coming back. And so they have all these shows that that are on TV and Netflix and all that. Then they throw in my joint in there, saying that <laughs> they have my picture up there. I'm like, hold on, man, I'm an independent <laughs> production. The Wilmington on fire too. I'm not affected. Cost of living. I'm not the reason why apartments are going up, man. <laughs> man, Chris ever can't walk down the streets. You know what I'm saying? They're like, come on, man. Yeah, they they had my in there, so part of it. Yeah, so they had me in there, man. I had the main cover image. They had like, I had like a BTS still of me directing. That's wow. It was cool. That's good promotion, but yeah, yeah. What is it? Any publicity is good publicity, right? Not today, man. Yeah, I I mean, maybe, but not. I read too many stories about randos, man. There's a lot of randos. Some people just see your picture, get the wrong idea, and do something crazy when you're on the street. Yeah. Listen, I said this way back in 2019 and 2020 when the pandemic started. I said my number one job is to avoid crazy. Because I think we're going to have like an uptick of crazy. And Nick, I don't think I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. I don't well, think I was wrong. And, and, I think my thesis been, is still avoid, correct. Right. And you've yeah, avoided I've, it. I've, I've avoided which crazy, is, which is good. By, by like double, doubling down on and not like, I'm not apologizing. I'm not apologizing for staying in my community. I'm not apologizing for keeping to, you know, I'm not, I'm not TLC. I'm not chasing waterfalls. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm good right here. I'm doing right. my thing right here, unless 
I have to. I try to make a point, but you can't avoid all all things. You got to go live your life. That I mean, that's right. true. That's just the artist's way. Right. But I'm not taking like I was uh, on vacation, Chris, mm-hmm. uh, the last couple of weeks, and they had this bridge, and we were driving past it. Now this bridge crosses the Danube River in Eastern Europe. This is a giant river. I think it's like the third biggest river in the world. You can fact check me on that producer, Papa Bear producer, at least. (laughs) The bridge is gigantic because if you've been to San Diego, they have a bridge that connects San Diego with Coronado. And that's a very tall bridge, very scary bridge to drive over if you're not a bridge person. Mm -hmm. It was about as high as that bridge and people were bungee jumping face first off of it. That's not my jam. No, sir. I said, I don't do extra shit. (laughs) No, no, sir. (laughs) <laughs> my mom my mom used to make me promise two things she said don't leave the house with dirty drawers that's an old black woman thing first of all mm-hmm. and then she said and don't die dumb don't die stupid <laughs> she said don't die stupid <laughs> and so I live with this sort of paranoia of like am I about to do something Right. like listen I mean I am not laughing I'm not mocking I am not happy about it it breaks my heart actually but I'm not going to be like those submarine guys. I know you're going to say those su- that. Those, those submarine bros that went down to find the Titanic. Like, right. first of all, it's not even that damn important. Right. Like, you weren't on a mission to save planet Earth. Planet Earth, right. the savior wasn't like 20 leagues below the sea. Right. You were going to go see some old, an old wreck. You, you, you got in a tragedy trying to see an old tragedy. Right. Yeah. Think well, about I'm going I'm to I'm tell you something right now, and we can move off of this. But if you guys have seen the Meg, which no, I've seen my it yet. son, I've seen it yet. yeah, yeah, it's just my son. He just wanted to watch it, so we watched it. If you watch, just go watch that movie. And the All reason right. I say go watch it is because I'm, I'm again, we're on a tangent, but it, I might have to jump on this. Nothing wrong with the good tangent. No, nothing wrong with good. Listen, they're talking about wreckage. Okay, how did this little submarine get wrecked underwater if something didn't wreck it? So if you watch the Meg, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it away. You know what Meg is about? It's about the megalodon, right? It's about a the big shark, shark right? Big ass shark. So I'm like, oh man, these fools done gone down there and found the Meg, and the Meg done busted oh, the Meg up that them. submarine. Exactly, yeah. done busted up this submarine. Why is there wreckage? Anyway, so when I when I heard that, I was just like, man, please don't let the next story be. There's something moving in the water. Hitting boats and knocking boats over. Because like, oh. that's what I was thinking, man. I was like, you know, honestly, we don't know what's really down there, man. You no, we really, we really don't, Chris. Because it's even some animals that's are, that's in the ocean that won't even go but so far. You know exactly. what I'm saying? So it's like. I, I'm not dealing with it. I'm not messing with it. <laughs> Plus, that space was so tight, too. Like, what? <laughs> Make me a big submarine. No, yeah. no. I'm no, six foot three, two thirty five. I need a big submarine. Dude, they mess around and the Meg is out there now and I'm mad about it. But anyway, we're going to bring it back because we did Tangent and I loved it. Now I got to watch this shitty movie. Exactly. (laughs) You're going to have to, bro. You're going to have to. You're going to see what I'm talking about. No, I'm just kidding. If you you made the Meg and you're listening to this, I'm just kidding. I haven't seen it yet. I'm not going to judge. Is it on Tubi or something? Yeah, it's going to be on everything, bro. It's like it's it's out there. You can watch it. Yeah, check out the Meg. They're they're doing a Meg too. It's Jason Statham's movie. So. Anyway, okay. but one of the okay. things that I wanted Anthem to get Rob. back, yeah, yeah, I wanted to get back to yep. was the fund itself, and the thing that I'm yeah, really right. interested in. I know my buddy, my boy Chris, is interested in is like who are 
who's contributing to this fund and yeah. you know what gets them excited about projects because you know when we're speaking to this big audience of filmmakers there's yeah. funds everywhere but i yeah. think that it's really good to know who's contributing and why they want to contribute yeah. because right. that's all part of the pitch that the filmmaker right. is going to want to make right so if you right. get us some like some ideas like yeah who's who are the contributors and you know what interests them and why are they contributing well, we have several. Um, so we, we have people that, you know, that want to get behind, you know, social justice docs. We have people that want to get behind environmental um, documentaries. You know what I'm saying? So we have a, a, a range of folks. Uh, we get funding from MacArthur Foundation, Perspective Fund, South Arts, North Carolina Arts Council as well. Um, so it's really about, you know, we get a lot of our support for people that just love documentary storytelling and telling these stories in the South. And like I said, it, it just ranges from topics. So social justice, uh, women's rights, um, you know, history, uh, you know, biography type of documentaries, um, mm. environmental, you know, um, LGBTQ, you know, plus type of stories as well. Uh, Latino stories. Uh, so really any of these type of topics, man, uh, folks that, that really rock with us and support us love, um, as long as it's from that Southern perspective and telling a Southern um, centric story around it. Okay. That's awesome. And you're finding that there's, I mean, you already mentioned like a number of um, like funds or foundations. I mean, you're finding a lot of individuals are supporting this as well. I mean, are you, you know, looking at, is this crowdfunded to a degree where individuals are, are providing support or are you looking at larger organizations and philanthropists who are offering right you know, funds, not just for individual projects that might be on the fiscal right, right, sponsorship right. side, right. but are just saying, no, we're going to contribute to the fund at large right, and then right. give the fund the ability to then school. I said, how does that kind of work? Yeah. And so, so we have a great relationship with MacArthur, MacArthur foundation. The um, foundation. They're the ones, yes, they, they do a lot for us. So they pretty much give us the funding to do the free mentorship program. Um, and okay. also to provide that yearly grant of 10 grand. And so now we're actually going to be, I can't say the name of the organization. It's a, it's a huge foundation. <laughs> and so I'm building a relationship with them right now. And so they're interested in actually putting an extra 10 grand on top of the 10 grand we already give out. So they want to kind of say, you know what, because the person that's over it, he's a filmmaker as well that works with this certain foundation. Um, and we were talking, I said, man, we know how hard it is, man. You know, five grand isn't really a lot. 10 grand isn't right. either. We'll take it. But to really, as a filmmaker, to really, you know, make some damage, make some waves with your project, you, you need at least 20, you know what I'm saying, to do yeah. something. And so he said, yeah, you're right. Let, let's try to let's try to make that happen for you guys. And so they, it's looking like they want to give us an extra 10 grand to put on top of our 10 grand so we can award, you know, five filmmakers with 20 grand and also provide them with mentorship as well. And so those are some of the things we're just continuing to try to do um, with some of my connections um, just in the film industry um, as much as I can. And like I said, I can really relate when I'm talking to these foundations. I can give them the ins and outs of SDFD Imports because they helped me. And, you know, so I'm a, a success story as well. And now I actually work for them as well. And also I'm a filmmaker, too. And so yeah. I know some of these needs and wants and, and struggles of, of filmmakers and, and all of our struggle. Our main struggle is funding is how to get the money, you know what I'm saying? And so I always tell filmmakers, yeah, you apply to these grants, apply to ours, but you got to realize that it's very competitive. 
Mm -hmm. um, it's really it's really competitive now because everyone got access to some type of camera, whether it's their cell phone or whatever. And then also you still have some of the heavyweights out here that are, have been in the game for years. They're competing for those same brands too. And so you're competing against some veterans, also with some folks like myself that's kind of like in the middle. And then you got other up-and-comers as well. And so it just makes it competitive. So you can't really rely on grants all the mm -hmm. time. And so what's, what's helped me a lot and that I always try to um, coach some of our filmmakers on is the power of crowdfunding. Um, so that's what I've been doing. That's how I've actually funded a lot of my stuff um, because it, you don't only raise money, but you also build audience and awareness right. as well. And so we actually been trying to do a little bit more of that type of thing where we do workshops and webinars around crowdfunding. I try to give, you know, some advice and, and do I'm kind of like the de facto mentor as well. So if people need help with marketing or crowdfunding, they just set up a time to talk with me. You know, we set up an hour to talk and go over some things. And, you know, I try to help them out with campaigns as well. We also support their campaigns, too. And so if you're fiscally sponsored by us and you are launching a campaign, we'll push it out there. You know, and a lot of times I'll contribute a few dollars myself, you know, because I like supporting just as a filmmaker. You know what I'm saying? And so we try to help push those campaigns as much as I can, as much as we can. And also other grant opportunities, you know, everyone can apply to our grant. And so we have there are a whole bunch of other grant opportunities out there that we try to push on social media. We also have a resource page on our website that we constantly update with different fellowships, grant opportunities um, and stuff like that as well. So we try to we try to be a big resource for filmmakers, especially if they're in the South. Do you have a go to platform for crowdfunding? To me, you know, I first started, it was Kickstarter for me years ago, but now I kind of fell in love with Seed and Spark. Um, okay. and I like Seed and Spark <laughs> because uh, they, they really, you really have to be on point with your campaign. Like with other platforms, you can just put it up and launch it. Seed and Spark, you can't even launch it. They have to go through it. They have to make sure your pitch video is on point. Your, your, your incentive levels are on point. They want to make sure, okay, you're trying to raise 20 grand but you only got 50 um, social media followers. Hold on, you're going to switch this up a little bit. And also mm -hmm. like it that if you raise at least 80% of your goal, you get to keep it because they feel like, okay, if you raise 80%, you could do something with that. You okay. know what I'm saying? Instead yeah. of just raising like 5%, <laughs> you know? And so I built a good relationship with them over the years. And so I like, I love seeing Swark a lot. Okay. Yeah, they've awesome. been very influential behind the scenes um, in the presentation space to yeah. sort of arts and business councils, right. uh, film festivals, yep. um, other types of funds. Their their um, their founder, she used to be on Twitter all the time, and we used to yeah. I think we used to comment back and forth. But I haven't seen her online in a minute, so she might have just quit Twitter uh, <laughs> a year or two ago or whatever. I'm not sure. Yeah. I haven't heard from her in a long time. But but shout out to Seed and Spark and. That's really good to know because I think basically each one of these crowdfunding sources kind of finds their lane. Right. So Kickstarter seems to be where if you're an inventor or you have a piece of tech, that's probably your best bet. If you're a filmmaker, Seed and Spark. If you have an illness, GoFundMe. Or if it's a health-related issue or a family-related issue, something personal to you. It right. feels like you wouldn't get on Kickstarter for that. You'd get on GoFundMe, right? right? Like, yeah, or it's if you all want, crowd. You know, it's all crowd bottles of Hennessy for your fiftieth birthday. Yeah, or what? Yeah, <laughs> something like that. That's very personal, Nick. <laughs> That's very personal. I saw. You know what's crazy? I'm, I'm dead you know serious. what's I'm dead serious? I saw that. I, I don't. I know. I, I know just... that you had to really see that to bring that up. 
<laughs> right. But I'll, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the truth about that. I've been to all kinds of parties. I went to a party that had the uh, Everclear punch yeah. where it tastes mm. like high C, but you're really yeah. drinking something you that's like in a bathtub. 50, yeah, it's like 150 proof and put you, you know, make you sideways. I have never been more sick than when I was drinking Hennessy and orange juice at a party. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was influenced by Pac. I'll admit it. I was influenced by Pac, you know, and I thought, okay, I'm going to drink Hennessy and juice too. I'm going to drink Alizé. <laughs> and I drank, I just kept drinking it, man. I, I'm telling you. I remember my boy Rossi walked in. We were at this like two story hotel room where we were throwing a party for our singing group at the time. And I was hugging the toilet, man. I was under the toilet. Man. He came in to fuck with me as friend, as best friends do. So he came in to do something terrible to me. And I remember looking up at him. I looked up at him like just like a like a like a wounded lamb. And I had my hand up like I said, I said, if you ever loved me. I swear to God, so I said, I said, if you ever love me, you'll walk back out that door right. and close it and just let me lay here, bro. Just let me lay here. And he looked at me and walked backwards and closed the door and nobody messed with me. I woke up a few hours later and n- nothing was drawn on my face. My shoe wasn't missing. Right. I didn't have one sock dipped in mustard. Like nothing yeah. weird happened. Chris, Chris, now you got to think about it, man. We got to make a track. We got to make a song. Just called let me lay here. Just let me lay. <laughs> <laughs> now you guys got me thinking, man. I was in LA. See, I, mean, yeah. you know, I was uh, it was just, I was out there for a convention, um, and uh, I was like, man, I, I met up with a friend out there. We went to a uh, some bar spot. It was cool. It was playing all that '90s, early 2000 yeah, music. Yeah. Man, I was drinking Hennessy and Red Bull all night. <laughs> I was messed up. I ended up so we were there like two in the morning. I, ended up, I was so drunk, I got into the wrong Uber. <laughs> I don't know what they put in it, Chris. Like, yeah, like, he, he, took, he took me somewhere. I was like, man, this ain't my hotel. So, you know. and he, 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 he said, you're not such a side? Nah. Oh, man. Oh, man. No, no, he said, uh, nah. But just That's scary in LA, here. too. Yeah, no, he said, let me lay here. Just let me lay here. Later. Let me lay. Let, let me, me lay. lay. Let, let me, me lay. lay. That's that's what it yeah. is. But they put something in it. It's just like mad dog. It's like it doesn't. You look at the alcohol content and you're like, right. okay, this isn't any more rough than brandy or like right. something like you know. Right. And you drink it, and then all of a sudden you so, go through phases of sickness. Like you go through hey, waves of drunk. Hey, that if you, you never want to know if you want to know why you're so negatively affected by such a drink. All you got to do. Is go watch Pootie Tang and find out. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. They putting something in that drink, bro. Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> trying to take you out. Or, or uh, Black Dynamite. Watch Black, Black Dynamite. Dynamite. Yep. Yep. Dynamite. Yeah, yeah. Dynamite. We figured, we figured out what's happening with the malt liquor. <laughs> That's but. right. That's right. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a plot. Yeah, All right. Let's yeah. bring let's let's bring Papa Bear back on to yeah, give us the it. answer. Let's to things we should know. And we're going to start with our uh, esteemed guest, Chris, mm-hmm. Chris Everett. Chris, what answer do you have? Wait, first, Papa Bear, repeat the question. Repeat the question. And yeah. then we'll start. We'll go Chris, Nick, then me. Okay. Which documentary film holds the record for the all-time greatest worldwide 
box office receipts? I would say, was it? Hey, man, I'm <laughs> a part between two. Just throw it out. I think it is. A, I think I think it's a Michael Moore joint. See, um, that's what I thought. Yeah. That's my thinking. I'll, I'll go with it. Fahrenheit 911. 911. Yeah, yeah. I've got yeah. Fahrenheit 911 as well. Yeah, yeah that's that, what so thinking. so that was on my list. So that's what I was. So you said that too, Chris. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Fahrenheit 911. So Fahrenheit 911 was on on mine, and then of course in my head I had Free Solo. So, yeah, bro. Like, I was like, because I was on it. I was just like you. I was like, Fahrenheit 9-11. That's it. It's Michael Moore. That's what it is. And then I'm like, crap, free solo. So I'm I'm going to just go all in. We are either all going to be right or we're all going to be wrong. I'm going Fahrenheit 9-11 with the two of y'all. Papa Bear. I tell you what. I'll start with the third highest grossing. Yep. And you'll be right. 2004 hey. Fahrenheit 9-11. There it is. Right. Okay, okay, <laughs> no, okay. I'm not satisfied. Third. That's the third. That's the third. Yep. I'm not satisfied. Right, that's number two. 1984's Grand Canyon, The Hidden Secrets. Never mm. even heard of it. I think that's Me. a lot. Me. At least, producer at least, <laughs> at least <laughs> fact check fact Papa Bear. Papa Bear. <laughs> <laughs> the numbers don't lie. Right. Okay. Number uh, one. The number one is the 2009 Michael Jackson's This Is It. Wow. Wow. 252, over $252 million worldwide. I saw This Is It. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, you're talking and, Michael Jackson joint? Yeah. 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 I would never imagine that. Yeah. No. I always tell my kids that they cannot, they cannot fully grasp how famous Michael Jackson was. Yeah. Bro. Like, Take the most famous person you know and maybe double it, and then maybe put like a a, a god complex on top of it. Like, dude, dude, like dude, all you gotta do, like this guy is made people faint in concert. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Like Taylor Swift's not doing that. I'm just no, telling nobody you, passes out at Taylor Swift concert unless they're inebriated. Thank you. One hundred. Yeah, people wanted right to there. rush the stage to touch his hand and stuff, yep. and you know, like imagine a full grown man that can walk around in military garb. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he won all these awards. He right. He didn't even yeah. win all those medals. Right. He didn't earn those medals. And he could walk them. around. He, is, yeah, yeah. He could, yeah, yeah. He could walk around like that. Like that was yeah. I was in his fan club when I was a kid. I had the little picture of him in that yellow sweater, V-neck sweater. Mm-hmm. He had a yellow V-neck sweater on. I had it yeah. on my wall. He had the little zipper jacket I wanted. Chris, Chris. Real bad. Now, they, no, real, no, I both of you. I'm, I'm going to explain something real quick. Now, this is something the next, this current generation doesn't understand, but I mention it all the time yes. when one of these tracks comes into our world. I said, I, I want you guys to understand something. When music videos came out for our, va- our favorite artists, yeah. they came out on primetime television. TV. Yes. Yeah. TV. They're saying like That's how big videos down, were. everyone watched that video at the yeah. same time on television. Like that's how big the, like these artists were that big. This isn't just something you streamed, you know, or whatever, right. or you followed them. No, no, no. At eight o'clock at night, <laughs> you were gonna Prime watch time. Michael Jackson. Exactly. It wasn't when done four o'clock. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody else. And it elevated them to a level that you just can't imagine. Man, it's you just, can't be totally that different. famous anymore. Michael Jackson yeah, right. shut down NBC to show you Scream. 
Yeah, right. Man, you remember? And see, y'all see? Yeah. Chris Everett yeah. was like, oh, I remember that. Yeah. When that yeah. came out, man, it was like, he had, you know, Janet, well, and it was, oh, yeah. oh, it was something else. To your credit, here's probably why uh, you picked uh, Fahrenheit 9-11. Okay. Out of those three, Fahrenheit 9-11 had the highest grossing domestically. Okay, so Fahrenheit 9-11, mm. highest had grossing. $119 million domestically. Domestically, okay. Michael yeah. Jackson's was only seventy-two million domestically, but worldwide. So Michael's was lower, but l- lower domestically, but it was higher worldwide. Got it. Yeah, yeah. There are yeah. countries in Eastern Europe that have full-size statues of Michael Jackson. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Think about that. Now somebody yeah. needs to confirm that for me. But that, yeah, that's, I'm, that's I'm amazing. Sure. Yeah, I know because it's not all cover of history, right? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. That, that was yo. He yeah. has a, I think he really does. Um, but he was so famous outside of the U.S. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I, I've said this before, but I highly recommend uh, Will Smith's uh, memoir, his book, his Will, book, that recently came Will. out. If you haven't read it recently, because he talks about how he got to be so famous. It wasn't about his domestic film work only. It was about the fact that when his films were premiere, um, internationally, he was one of the stars that didn't complain about doing the press junket and flying right. and promoting the film. And right. he would go further and actually learn at least one sentence in that language that he could say on their local TV show. Right. So those people began to relate to him quite a bit because right. he would show up there and not act like he was too good for it. Right. Like he would invest in that community, promote that film, make sure the film popped off in that country the right way. And right. all of a sudden he became the Will Smith we know now. Yeah. Everybody's hero. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody's hero. I, I, exactly. Exactly. Papa Bear, thank oh, you so awesome. much. This was a yep. very, very fun one. Great job <laughs> per usual. And and Chris, thank you so much for hopping on and joining us. Is there is there anything you want to share with our audience? Any words of advice, words of wisdom? Is, is there any uh, notes of encouragement, uh, anything you want to promote uh, about the Southern Documentary Fund? You, it, it's your world. Go for it. Oh, yeah. Just uh, that, you know, if you want to tell stories, you want to do documentaries, just do them. Um, you're going to learn by doing it. Um, don't keep procrastinating because it took me a while. I, I did. I dealt with that. I think I came up with the concept of Wilmington on fire and it took me like three years to actually just do it. You know, and so just yep. do it. Um, it's not going to be perfect. Um, you got to realize even some of the top filmmakers ever of all time, even like Spike Lee, he says that, man, I can't even watch some of my first couple of films <laughs> because I see the mistakes and I feel like they're so bad. But some of those films are like legendary, you know, in our eyes. And right. so you got to remember that even some of the greats that's ever done it, they even make mistakes on films. And so you're, you're not going to you're not going to you're always going to make mistakes. So just learn how to just learn how to correct those mistakes and just get better with each film. You know what I'm saying? And also Southern documentary fund. If filmmakers are out there that are based in the South or have strong ties to the South, um, hit us up, go to Southern documentary fund.org. If you're interested, you got a project, um, hit us up and we can see if we can uh, fiscally sponsor you or do something or help you out in some form or fashion. We also have our grants. Our annual grants are launching July 17th as well. And so be on the lookout for that, too. And then also Wilmington on Fire, too. We hope to premiere this November in Wilmington. So I'll definitely keep you guys in the loop about that. 
And also yeah. we're in post-production with my martial arts documentary, Grandmaster, the Vic Moore story as well. We're trying to have that ready uh, for next spring. And so be on the lookout for that. Grandmaster Moore, four-time world karate champion um, from pretty much the uh, the heyday of martial arts, um, especially um, sport karate in the 1960s. He was a, mm-hmm. a champion during the early years of that sport. He's fought people like Chuck Norris. He's mm-hmm. kind of famous and known for the infamous speed competition against Bruce Lee um, yeah. back in the day. And um, also training a chimp how to do karate as well. Um, so that's kind of like the three things he's kind of known for. And so we document, man, his whole history and also how he's working with these two young up-and-coming martial artists as well to pass this knowledge of um, karate down to this next generation of martial artists. So I'm excited about it. It's very different from Wilmington on Fire, but it's still an important piece of our history and our culture that's not really talked about. And so those are the films that I like to do and tell. Not only stories about the South, but just about Black history and culture in general that's not talked about in the mainstream. So definitely look out for all those projects coming soon. That's yeah, awesome, that's man. That's like, there's so much there. You know, there's so much there to work with, but I know that I'm a, you know, my buddy Chris here, Chris B, um, will, will let me off, you know, put this offer out there because, you know, you said mistakes and we have a series called Mistakes in the Making and we would love for you to come back and do a mistake in the making with us. And it's, you know, oh, pretty yeah. simple. You know, we give you the mic and you, you know, talk about a mistake that you've made that has really, you know, potentially changed the way that you look at filmmaking, right? It is now turned turned into a lesson learned. And, yeah. you know, that is basically what we're all about. And, you know, we oh, yeah. we can talk about the successes all day, but if we do that, right. we'll just be like everybody else, you know, and right. that's not our goal. We don't want to be like everybody else. We really want to talk about the reality behind filmmaking. And as Chris mentioned, you know, filmmakers are people too. We make mistakes. This is what happens in life. And if we can provide those mistakes and tell people how we grew from them and then turned into things that now that have become successes for us, to me, that's where we're doing the right thing for the community that we're a part of. So we'd love to have you back on, man. Let's let's make it happen. Just, Just let me know when I'll do it. Yes, yeah, this is, yes, this is yeah, this has been an absolute blast. Guys, don't forget to go out and support Wilmington on Fire, the first edition. You can go watch that on Amazon Prime. You can rent it or you can buy it. Put your money where your mouth is. Support independent filmmakers and independent film. Um, we think uh, you're going to love it. You know, And if you loved listening to Chris's perspectives on this conversation, you're going to get that in his filmmaking and the films coming up. So look out for that. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart, or you can just search at this point for Chris Barkley and I'll come right up. If you want to reach out to Nick and uh, complain to him, uh, make fun of him for his mistakes about the Hawaiian people, or just tell him how great he is, you can actually email him. He's a brave soul. You can email him at Nick, N-I-C-K, at bonsai.film. And if you want to know more about what we do with independent filmmakers in the branding and marketing space and in the independent media space. I'll try that again. That's the independent media space. Let me say, (laughs) uh, let me enunciate here. That's easy. That's just www.bonsai.film. Some quick housekeeping. The Danube river is the second longest river in Europe, but it is the 23rd longest in the world. So I was way off on the biggest in the world, (laughs) but, kind of close in Europe. Anyway, it's not a river I'm jumping into. That's the point. I'm not, I'm not doing it. (laughs) I'm not a bunch of jumping into the Danube (laughs) river. 
the right, thing could yeah. be the size of a puddle. I'm not jumping into it. So anyway, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, got to thank you, Chris, for, for joining us uh, on this indie talk. But we know we're going to talk again soon. And with that, Nick, can you please leave us with the creep? Yep, of course. Uh, for our filmmaking friends, family, and followers out there, we always say, be better, be creative, be engaged. And thank you for listening. Fellas, talk to you soon. Yes, sir. All right, right, guys. Peace. Peace. Be good. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at underscore Bonsai Creative, and on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. In addition, you can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we are trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please consider supporting our Patreon page. We spend a combined 35 hours a week producing each episode. We do this with a small team of go-getters that are passionate about film and connecting people with similar interests across the globe. And we have lots of goodies in store for our supporters, including bonus content, exclusive swag, and discounts and freebies to private film events. If that sounds like something you can get behind, donations start at only $5 monthly. And of course, If you're looking to take a big step toward your film's financial success, go to www.banzai.film and click on services to explore our unrivaled approach to film marketing. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.